This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. City councilors apparently spent some time looking at spending rules for this controversial ward infrastructure budget. Uh, we've been talking about this for about four years on this program, and uh, not a whole lot of people at City Hall seem to want to pay much attention to it, uh, except for our next guest. And uh, she actually led enough of a number of the questions uh, that were asked of city councilors. And uh, to give us some clarity on exactly what's going on and maybe uh, some some ideas on how we can make this a little more fair, I'd like to see it eliminated, but at least a little more fair, uh, Ward 7 Councilor Donna Skelly joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Donna, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Great to be here. Uh, nobody seemed to want to talk about this, and I know you're probably not making a whole lot of friends with your council colleagues by bringing this up yesterday. No, and, and in all fairness, it's something actually that um, uh, a very engaged Hamilton resident, a woman by the name of Viv Saunders, has really been uh, trying to bring to the forefront for, for a couple of years now, and it's something that really irks me as well. And it's just the fact, in my opinion, it's pretty clear. We have a fund, as you know, being a, a, a man who sat on council for a number of years, we have funding that is allocated uh, to councillors within wards one through eight, the original city of Hamilton. And we have one point, almost $7 million, 100000 of which we can use on infrastructure, hard infrastructure. And there is a definition within our books that states that it is to be used on things like roads and sidewalks and lighting and uh, sewers, etc. Um, somehow in the past number of years, this has evolved to include arts grants and soft infrastructure and support programs, all of which are fine. They're great programs, but they're not supposed to be um, funded through this particular pot of money. This is for hard infrastructure. As you know, the city of Hamilton has a, a huge infrastructure deficit, and this was supposed to address that. But if you look at the way the money is being spent, it certainly doesn't. Well, and this is the thing that I've had a problem with ever since this was initiated, and, and that, that was after my time on council. This is a, a, a concoction of a, a, a subsequent city council that decided, hey, this is an idea of fairness, let's do this. Uh, so this pot of money, and I've called it a slush fund, and I know some of your colleagues get uh, really ticked off about that. But I mean, you know, if, if it walks, I agree with you. If it I walks like a duck and though. quacks like a duck, it's a slush fund. Well, if you look at it, and you know, I'm really worried about when we spend money for that very reason. The last thing you want to be accused of is using something to um, as a slush fund. I'll just leave it at that. So you have to be very careful, and you can you can approach staff and say, does this qualify? Does this should I use um, this pot or this funding uh, source to cover the cost of this? And if they say, I don't know, if they start to question it, if it's a gray area, I simply say it's not worth it. You know, we'll figure it out. If, if, if this isn't the, the proper process, we'll either, and it's warranted, we'll find a way of, of funding it and do it correctly. But if you're suggesting that this is a real gray area, then I say stay away from it. And, and, I've, and that's how I operate, and that's how I feel we should operate. And, but if you look at some of the expenses, Bill, it's very clear that this is not infrastructure. Yeah, very, I, I want to talk clear. about that list in just a couple of seconds. But uh, just to put this in context, th this whole mindset started, I guess, seven or eight years ago. And it was just before a municipal election uh, when city staff said, hey, there'd been a social service uh, overpayment and the province was going to give us a big whack of money. And uh, council decided, yeah, let's just spend it among ourselves. 
uh, on special projects, and and they got it divvied up among all the candidates. And and this was it, uh, this is like just a few months before the election. I mean, you talk about an uneven you know grounds for for anybody that wants to challenge an incumbent. They're simply going to neighborhoods and simply saying, "What do you want? I got free money here." And they've taken that same mindset with this slush fund. Some have spent it on infrastructure, to be sure, and to be fair about that. But others have played fast and loose with this and have really used it to curry favor with neighborhood groups. Well, if you look at it, and I'm not going to name names, however, if you look at it, you can see that the majority of councillors spend it correctly, I believe. Um, But there are some glaring examples of inappropriate spending. To me, that is not uh, at all a gray area. It's just very black and white. Give me me some examples. Well, let me give you some examples. I've highlighted them, actually. Now, I started going through it, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, this whole discretionary fund is uh, in Wards 1, for example. I would challenge a sound system, eggs for an egg hunt, uh, um, participatory budgeting, budgeting, which is something, you know, I think it's wonderful. It's very democratic. They allow the community to determine how these funds should be spent. The problem is they're paying for consultants. I thought it was something that the group was doing on a voluntary basis. But it's thousands. We're talking, you know, close to $100,000 to cover the cost of this participatory budgeting process, which I think is absolutely not what this fund was intended for. It was never to be uh, spent on on personnel, on staffing whatsoever, not on operations. It's for hard infrastructure. Uh, Grants, the number of sponsorships, and in the thousands and thousands and five and six thousand dollars to local organizations, festivals, concert series, music programs, even giving money to our schools. Now we are subsidizing the province. What happened there? Why are we investing in, in parks, in playgrounds that should, this money should be coming from the Ministry of Education, from the province. The city should, certainly shouldn't be spending uh, money on things like this. And when I see grants going to local neighborhood organizations that deserve the money, that are wonderful programs, but they are bypassing the the process to apply for grants. You have, and, and like, have I want to be clear about that. There's a grant subcommittee. Yeah. All right, and it's made up of councillors. And you're, the process that Don is talking about here is if you're a neighborhood group and you you want some money, you make application. It's 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 viewed by city staff. They make a recommendation, and the councillors decide. That's the process. And some people get the money, some don't, uh, because there's only a certain amount of money in the pot. This is this is as you mentioned, going in the side door and simply saying we don't want to go through all that. The, you know, the proper protocol, we're just going to put some pressure on our city councillor to get the money. And it, I don't even know if it's that much pressure. Uh, and I don't think it's appropriate, and I don't think it's fair. These people may have the best organizations and, and warrant every penny that they were given, but this is the wrong fund, and this process, the proper process, has been bypassed. It's been avoided, and it's unfair to other organizations who are as worthy and deserve this funding, but haven't been able to access a counselor who will say, here's 2,000, here's 3,000, here's 5,000, here's 6,000, here's more. Uh, you know, websites, why is, why is this infrastructure fund being spent on a website for a community organization? And $30,000, $50,000, it gets a lot of money. And I think that we have to stop. We had a, a quite an engaged discussion, and I want to be very fair. Councillor Aidan Johnson and I disagree on um, the term infrastructure, and he suggests, and, and, and I, I'm speaking on his behalf, and which is unfair, but we did have this discussion in public yesterday, 
And there has been, in his opinion, a precedent set when Councillor McCaddy was on, and he introduced a term called soft infrastructure. But that was never, ever the point, in my opinion, of this fund. Yeah, let's, let's, let's listen. Yeah, let's, let's cut the wordsmithing out. Councillor, then Councillor McCaddy used that phrase to try to justify spending outside of the realm of what it was supposed to be. I mean, and don't hang your hat. I know you don't, but don't let councillors hang their hat on that and say, well, that's the new definition. No, it's not. It's not the definition. It is not, and actually yesterday in our AF&A meeting, which is Audit, Finance, and Administration meeting, we asked staff to report back, is there any, anything in our records, anything in our history on council, where council agreed in a motion, in a direction that we would allow so-called soft infrastructure uh, to be part of this um, criteria for determining what is eligible and what is ineligible for these projects, and there is no history. They haven't reported back yet, but Councillor um, Aidan Johnson suggested that, no, we didn't ever really vote on it, but with the precedent set, we should move forward. This, isn't a, this is not a, a, um, a, um, a trial. Uh, this is not a court of law. I don't believe that we use a precedent when we, we talk about being able to move forward. I don't think it's the appropriate um, uh, way of spending this funding. I don't think it does apply. And I don't think it's that difficult. There are, they keep saying there's a gray area. I think it's pretty black and white. If it's not city-owned and if it's not infrastructure, we shouldn't be funding it out of this particular pot. How difficult is that for these guys to understand, or your council colleagues? I, I simply don't get that. Uh, and listen, you brought up another point that I know you and I talked about, and, and this is one of the reasons I, I got kind of crazy about this when they started doing this when the fund was established, is they use this. Obviously, as we both know, this is an election year. There's a municipal election coming up in October. This is an unfair advantage for an incumbent councillor to simply go out there and say, what do you guys want, and try to curry favor. You know, I'll buy, I'll buy you a new playground structure. I'll do this. I'll set up a website for you. That's that's an unfair advantage. And uh, the suggestion has been that there should be a moratorium make six, nine months, or whatever it is, before the election, so councillors don't get to use this money for their own purposes, which let's cut to the chase here, is their re-election. But, but, Bill, we don't even need to employ, we don't need to create that because the rules would restrict that. This funding, this fund is to be used for infrastructure. If a road needs to be paved, and I have a long list of things that I'm doing in my, in my ward this summer where repaving certain areas that have potholes that would, you know, um, swallow up a car, uh, that's what the fund is for. And this has to go through this year because it's so long, you know, it's, it's overdue. But when you start using it to bypass rules to to support, you know, you know, providing first of all, it's even um, funding for grant uh, for associations, et cetera, grants to associations. You do have an opportunity, and it has to stop a couple of months prior to the municipal election, and that is sponsorships. That is supposed to come out of your own budget, your which, own. Which, which by the way, budget. has also increased significantly over the last number of years. But that's probably another debate. The, the, the concern here is, is simply this. These guys know the rules, and they've played mm-hmm. fast and easy with them. And, and I think it's somewhat duplicitous for them to say, well, we need clarification. You already know the answer. I agree. I agree. I believe that it is very black and white. We don't need clarification. Quit trying to come up with a reason to justify all of these other expenses. And if your ward is in such great shape, 
that you're spending this money, you're looking for ways to spend the money, then then there's a bigger problem. We need to start looking at Well, you know, that's, Donna, entirely- you know that's not the case. I mean, from no, your time on council, the, the, the intended purpose of this was, and just so people understand the budget process, because you guys are going through that right now, when you talk about capital projects and fixing infrastructure, uh, staff come up with a list, and maybe, maybe there's 100 things on that list that need to be done this year. They can't afford to do all of them, so they may recommend 15 or 20 of them. Well, this money was supposed to be, well, those that didn't make that cut, if that's in your ward, here's some money to go towards fixing it. That's what it was supposed to be for, not to just spend it as they see fit. We have an annual infrastructure deficit um, north of $100 million, and we are spending our infrastructure money on websites and that we on, on organizations that we don't we don't uh, support we are spending money on staffing when we shouldn't be on consultants fees this is on movie nights that's not what this fund is for and we'll never ever ever tackle that infrastructure deficit if we don't um, if we don't stop this spending if we don't say look these are the rules we have to start following the rules but we're not following the rules and we're not asking and we're not putting pressure on our colleagues to say this this is an unacceptable it isn't it doesn't qualify it is ineligible please play by the rules we ask you know and the other thing is we were elected um uh with the intention of the electorate to respect our hard-earned tax dollars and when they're not being spent the way that people thought they would be, I think that that's really doing a disservice to residents of this community. And people, you know, and I, I say that they're tapped out, but they are. We pay, our taxes in the city of Hamilton are quite high. And we have a, a very serious problem with infrastructure. And we can't simply afford to spend money on things that um, we shouldn't be spending money on when the rules are very clear. Well, listen, they go to the federal and provincial government every year, and I understand why, and simply say we need more money for infrastructure. We have an infrastructure deficit. The mayor's talked about it. Every councillor I've had on this program has talked about it. But if I'm a member of one of those governments, Donna, a federal or a provincial member, I'm simply going to say you have money available, guys. You're not spending it on infrastructure. Some of you aren't anyway. So don't come to us cap in hand until you start doing your thing properly. I hope that people in the city who are upset about this, and, and I am, I think it's, it's, um, it's inexcusable. I hope they go online, and you can go online on our city website. It's hamilton.ca, and, and look at the minutes and simply look for this information. It's all there. There's an appendices of all of the way, of every expense, and it's all um, um, allocated to each different ward. Well, that was you one of the requests it. yesterday, was it not? Ms. Saunders actually asked for an audit mm-hmm. of the money that's been spent. Of course, council didn't address that. I got, they, they don't want that information out there during an election year. Well, but it, but it's it. worth it's noting that other councillors, Donna, including Toronto, uh, councillors are required to post all of that on the website. This is actually posted today, if you wanted to look at it. Uh, I have no problem posting mine. It's a blank slate. Um, you know, I mean, and, and let's be honest, if you have a question, you simply call up, they give you some guidance and you use your, your own discretion. And, and I like to, um, uh, think that we're being very conservative in the way that we decide to spend this money. And, and it's not that difficult. Bill, you know that. It's how do you define infrastructure? It's pretty simple. And I think that we need to start pushing back and saying, if we want to, seriously address an infrastructure de- deficit. We're having a seven-hour uh, summit on Friday to address these things, and this is where we're going to be going cap-in-hand to the province and, and pushing back. 
why don't we push back on our own council members? But we have to do this with a united voice because it can't be one or two people. Um, you know, you, be, you get a target on your back, not that I'm afraid of it, but, you know, the, the, the point is we need to hold our own colleagues accountable for the decisions that they're making because it isn't their money. It is our money. They happen to have it within their ward, but it is also taxpayers' money, and I think we all have to be held responsible for how this money is being spent. Absolutely. Ward 7 Councillor Donna Skelly. Donna, thanks for the time today. Anytime. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Late last week, uh, progressive conservative MPP Michael Harris announced that he was not going to run in uh, this spring's election uh, because he has a, an eye disease and uh, didn't think it was going to be the right thing to do. Uh, and we took that at face value and I said, okay, fine. But then, all of a sudden, uh, a couple of days later, uh, came word about alleged uh, inappropriate behavior with a staffer. Now, Michael Harris has now apologized over those inappropriate texts and allegations of misconduct that occurred nearly six years ago. He's been kicked out of the caucus and says he can't run anymore. Joining us to talk about the whole situation is uh, Alan Carter, who, of course, is the co-anchor of uh, Global News at 530 and 6 and Queen's Park Bureau Chief. Uh, Alan, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Oh, thanks for having me on again, Bill. Is it one of these situations where you can't quit, you're fired? <laughs> well, you know, there, there are some lingering questions here that are going to have to be addressed by Mr. Ford, who is currently in northern Ontario on a swing through northern Ontario and hasn't had to face much in the way of media scrutiny, but the questions for the party and for the leader are going to be, if you knew about this on Friday, which they did, and you decided early Saturday and, uh, that, he, that Mr. Harris could not run as a candidate and informed him of such, why did the party then stand by while Mr. Harris put out this fiction about you know, not running again because of a degenerative eye disease and the need for a, a an operation, and not until Monday after question period, he was even in question period, he was in the house, sitting with them in the house, not until reporters started asking some questions about it, did all of a sudden it come out that, oh no, the reason he's not running again is because he's been booted for this uh, inappropriate text message exchange with an intern. Part B to that question may well be, Alan, uh, why did it take the Progressive Conservative Party so long to respond? This was the subject of a written complaint back in 2013. Well, that's another question that you have to ask yourself. Why is it that this has just sort of been lingering and kicking around like they knew it was there? Mr. Harris says the party had been informed long ago. He also says that there was never any official complaint. But nevertheless, there it is, just sort of hanging out there. And what was it? Was it a, you know, in a file folder somewhere that nobody saw till Friday? Where was it? Again, there's a lot of questions that need to be answered by the party. Yeah, and I, I got that read from one of the, the party talkers here that they said, yeah, there's no official complaint. But if it's a written complaint, it's on the record someplace. I mean, somebody knew about this. Well, they have the text messages. So they have these text messages that include... Uh, and this is according to the uh, PC caucus chair, Lisa Thompson's statement, saying they include, they include Mr. Harris asking the young intern to send him photos. Uh, the, the texts are of a sexual nature. So those exist and clearly have existed for some time in, you know, in some sort of file folder somewhere at the PC party headquarters. And the question is, why did it take till Friday? 
Well, and you mentioned off the top, Alan, that uh, these are questions that, that Doug Ford really needs to address. But you got to catch him first, though, Alan. Well, yes, and so yesterday they they put out the caucus chair, and then you then you know, of course, as you do, you contact the leader's office and you say, okay, well, what's the leader going to say about this? I appreciate he's in Northern Ontario; that's fine. He's allowed to go around the province, but they basically said, well, no, no further comment. Now he did put out a statement that just sort of reaffirmed everything that had been previously said, but there's this, a worrying pattern here. One, with the, okay, we're not going to run a media bus, which we can talk about separately. I'm not so fussed about that. But on the very day the, the bill that they said, oh, we're not going to have a media bus, and don't worry, media, we'll tell you, you know, where we're going to be. We'll give you all kinds of opportunity to ask questions. Don't worry about it. That very same day, they gave the media... 20 minutes notice of a Doug Ford availability at Queen's Park. And it was like, well, you're either here or you're not. Too bad. So that kind of behavior combined with, you know, no comment yesterday is worrying about what kind of campaign Mr. Ford will run. Yeah, I, I'm the same boat as you. I'm, I'm not overly concerned about the no campaign bus situation, but it's the availability to the media uh, that bothers me. And this is this is going to be a campaign by cliche then, the, the way that Ford's running this. And by the way, I saw that media scrum that you just talked about, Alan. Yeah, I think he took four or five questions, and then he went into his office. I mean, you know, that you know, it's, it's getting a little hot here. I don't, I, you know, and he got a, a couple of answers where he sort of fumbled the ball, and the staff just said, "Well, that's all for now," and boom, off he goes. Well, and, you know, and just from a purely, and I, I appreciate that nobody really wants to hear a journalist complain about how their job is hard, because everybody's job is hard. But Mr. Ford made these outrageous comments about how he uh, had done more for the black community in Canada than any other politician except for his late brother. Well, I don't have that on tape, because, you know, my camera got there three minutes later, and like you say, it was a brief thing. He comes out, he says something, you know, controversial or incendiary, and not everybody's going to be there to have it, and that is a big concern, I think, for accountability. And and that's the word that, that I guess a lot of folks are forgetting when it comes to this sort of thing, because, uh, I, and I know that Ford has asserted more than once in the last couple of days, Alan, that he's not Donald Trump, and uh, you know the, the the comparisons between the two are totally unfair. Uh, whether he is or he isn't, I guess that's for each individual to decide. But he's running a campaign the same way Trump did. Well, increasingly, I think those comparisons are going to stick. And I, Mr. Ford, is, I, you know, I, I give him the credit where credit is due in terms of differentiating himself from from Mr. Trump. There are enormous differences between the two. You know, Mr. Ford does not pander to a kind of race-baiting anti-immigrant vote. That is not not part of his brand. So you would have to say, okay, well, those two things don't equate. But there are other elements of the Trump brand that are, you know, that you find in the Ford brand, which is, you know, a lack of depth on public policy, doesn't really matter, Um, sloganeering, and, you know, where Mr. Trump said that he was going to build a wall, Mr. Ford, and oddly enough, this doesn't get enough uh, attention, Mr. Ford says he's going to build a giant neon sign at the border that says Ontario is open for business. He's not talking figuratively, Bill. He literally is going to build a giant sign. Uh, this, it's, it's bizarre, really, the, the, the comparisons on this. 
and, and of course, inaccurate information too. You know, when he talks about hydro rates and a number of other things, and and you know, commercial tax rates. Uh, and I've seen some of the commercials that they're running on this, and and it, it's inaccurate information. But uh, I guess the other question that that we need to ask ourselves is, does anybody care? Because it doesn't seem to be affecting me in the polls. Well, and. I- I wonder about that. I mean, I'm wondering how much of these polls continue to be people just being cheesed off and angry in advance of the writ. And then once we get into the campaign, because remember, campaigns count. Like, think back to 2014. Now, Mr. Hudak didn't have the kind of lead that Mr. Ford has in the polls, but he was certainly leading. And and yet, you know, once we got into the campaign and 100,000 jobs came out of his mouth, well, it was all over. So... Keep in mind that things can change in a campaign, but it's certainly, you know, I think that this desire for change in Ontario has, I mean, I got tweets yesterday, Bill, I think that are, that, that say a lot. I was sort of talking about this whole problem with Mr. Harris and the communication and the questions that Mr. Ford was going to have to answer. And I got a number of tweets back that just said, I don't care. It's time for a change. And I think there's a big, big current of that in Ontario. Sure. And, and I, you know what, I think we all see that that's on the horizon. As to what that change is actually going to look like, well, that'll be determined on June the 7th, of course, Alan. But the other element to this is, does that mean that the guy who's probably going to be the premier, if that change goes the way some people think it's going to be, can do and say whatever he wants with no accountability? Because that seems to be what they're saying. Well, that's worrying, and I think the other thing that's worrying is is that, you know, there were promises of a fully-costed platform, and now the party seems to have walked back from that. So, I mean, are people actually in this province going to have to go to the polls in June and not really know what he's going to do or how he's going to do it beyond this sort of sloganeering? I, th- that is unprecedented in politics in this province, and I would say that it would be political death for anybody Except Doug Ford, because the same rules don't apply to him. But Alan, we, meaning the Ontario voters, have been burned before uh, because we were so ticked off with the sitting government. I mean, it happened uh, with the Ray government in 1995, and we said, that's it, and we went to the other end of the spectrum, and uh, we took Mike Harris on the Common Sense Revolution. And by the way, to his credit, Mr. Harris actually had a platform. Uh, the, the common sense revolution. But he never said that, hey, I'm going to download a lot of those costs onto your property taxes. And a lot of people say, whoa, what's going on here? We have the right to ask these questions. And and the, the public has a right to know this before they cast their vote on June 7th. And we're getting vagaries from the progressive conservatives. Instead, it's, it's, it's all cliches. It's five-point programs. I'm going to find efficiencies. Well, you and I both know, we've been around long enough to know efficiencies means cuts. In one way, shape, or form, it's going to be cuts. What's he going to cut? And, and we're getting no answers. No, you're right. And I think that there's going to be a growing unease with giving Mr. Ford a blank check. That's the, that, that's the term I've heard a number of times from conservative voters or, or those that would normally lean progressive conservative. Say, I'm concerned. Yeah, I want to change. I want her out, but... I'm concerned about the circus that comes with Mr. Ford, and I am not, I'm not going to give him a blank check. I'm not going to say, yeah, where you go, I don't know what you're going to do, but you're going to figure it out. Fine, go. Yeah, well, let's talk about that circus. Uh, <laughs> you mentioned a few minutes ago that, that Doug Ford is not known for race baiting and anti-immigrant branding. Uh, one of the potential members of his caucus uh, seems to be leaning that way. If you look at some of the tweets from Tanya Grashik-Allen over the last couple of days... 
Well, those those tweets are actually quite old, Bill. Those are uh, historic; like they go back some some distance before she actually got into politics. But not surprising with her social conservative uh, background that you know. And and she said some pretty outrageous things about the niqab and about the burqa, comparing them to Spider Man masks and you know, and, and bank robbers and stuff like that. And and so Mr. Ford has had to distance himself from those those comments. That is, I mean. Listen, that is the the conservative nightmare that goes back as far as there's been a conservative party is that you would you have somebody in your ranks running for you who says things that you know alienate the middle you know and and, and embarrass you. Uh, Miss Allen, despite the fact that she made Mr. Ford leader essentially, she was kingmaker, she's still got to win a nomination. There's no guarantee she's actually going to be on the ticket. Yeah, absolutely. And her nomination meeting, I think, is coming up in a couple of days, and uh, we'll see how that turns out. But it, it does. It fans those fears that, you know, this is going to be extreme, right? And this is uh, this is playing to the, to to that element uh, of, of our society uh, to try to garner support, which, again, is something that Ford or, or, or Trump was accused of doing. Uh, has, has she disavowed the comments? Has she walked back on those? I haven't heard any any retraction from her. No, there hasn't been any comment from her as of yet. That may change throughout the course of the day, though. Uh, but again, it, it, you talk about the quality of the members on the team, and, and here's Ford going on the defense, or at least his campaign team is going on the defensive about something like this. Uh, and, and you have to wonder uh, if in, you've seen this happen in campaigns before, Alan, where it's not one thing that maybe gets people going. It's it's the culmination of a whole bunch of things that add up. Just people just say, you know what? I just I'm not sure. I don't think I want to go there. Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, that's what the liberals are hoping is that, you know, this drip, drip, drip of, oh, he doesn't want a media bus. Oh, he, you know, he kept quiet about this Michael Harris thing. Was he trying to cover it up? Oh, Tony Granik Allen. You know, drip, 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 drip. You know, the comparisons to Trump, drip, 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 drip. And that hopefully, you know, over the course of the next two months, and then add that to the campaign, and maybe he makes a misstep there, that, yeah, that there will be this big, you know, there will be a, a large portion of the electorate that just says, I, jeez, I don't know. And, of course, the liberals are hoping that, on the progressive side, that strategic voting will be their salvation, whereas they'll just open i mean they've openly appealed to every ndp supporter with all of these promises of universal care and then say if you don't want doug ford there's only one place to put your vote what about the other way though i mean just reverse that for just a second because uh, i think one of the big questions in this election is going to be where do those disenchanted liberal votes go i mean there are a lot of people that voted liberal last time that have grown tired of kathleen Wynne, and they may be a little nervous about putting their support behind doug ford do they go to the ndp or do they stay home I, I think they're going to stay home. I think you're going to find, I mean, it's difficult to tell, but at this point of view, at, from this point, I, I think June 7th is going to be very low turnout. I think people, I think there's going to be on both sides, both liberal supporters who traditionally would vote liberal who just stay home and say, I just can't do it. And then a lot of conservatives, I think, will also stay home and say, I, I can't do it. Um, and, you know, if people don't vote, well, look what happened in the United States. A lot of Democrats held their, you know, did not go to the polls because they weren't crazy. They weren't fussed about their candidate, and Mr. Trump won. 
Do you, do you foresee any changes with the, with the way the conservatives are getting? I mean, they are getting some heat, but uh, and, and again, they're using some of the terminology that we heard in that U.S. election. Of course, mainstream media uh, biases, uh, you know, even fake news has thrown a, a couple of social media uh, tweets over the last little while. They're using those tools right now to basically discredit uh, folks like you and, 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 and so many others that are raising some questions about this and simply saying, don't pay attention to them. They're just trying to get us. Is that resonating? Well, I think with a certain portion of the electorate, yes, it does resonate. I think those people are all not going to be voting liberal anyway, so I don't think it expands their base all that much. I mean, there is a big desire for change, as we talked about. You make the good point. What does that change look like? I mean, for the for, for, for the conservatives, their challenge is going to have, going to be can they convince a rather skeptical, mushy middle? Remember, Ontario is a centrist province. It's, Bill Davis still looms large in this province in terms of electoral politics. Never too hot, never too cold. That's what the people of Ontario generally like in elections. The question is, is can Mr. Ford appeal to that center enough to be able to put himself in a majority position? And and that's why we were looking, I think, with raised eyebrows at, at the People's Guarantee, which was Patrick Brown's uh, agenda for this election, uh, because it looked like a Bill Davis platform. You know, they're trying to a little bit of everything. Uh, that's been tossed into the blue bin, so that's not going anywhere. But I think there were a lot of people, I think, Alan, that were just definitely made up their mind, yeah, I'm going to vote conservative this time because I'm tired of the liberals. Now, they, they, a lot of the ones I've talked to anyway that were going to do that are having some second thoughts, and they quite frankly don't know where to go. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, say what you will about Mr. Brown. His platform was very cunningly crafted to appeal to that centrist. And and he had sort of repudiated the, the Mike Harris past of the PC party and, as you say, gone right to the Bill Davis well. Um, now that's all gone. And we've gone back to much more of a Harris-esque style. And I, I just don't know where those centrist voters are going to go. I mean, will Mr. Ford be able to convince them that, you know, the money is safe with him and that, you know, he will run a competent government? I, I think the, the jury is still out on that. It's been a roller coaster ride already, and we haven't even had the writ dropped yet. I mean, it's it's going to get more intense as as, as they they hit the road uh, with the campaign buses and and the promises come. Uh, and there's a lot to to I guess sift through here from all three major leaders with the, some of the promises that have been made and some of the funding. But one of the things that I, as a voter says, just step aside as a journalist for a second, that I'm always intrigued by is costing of the platforms. Uh, it's, it's been the downfall of the NDP in the last two or three elections. I mean, what they promise is fabulous, but then you try to crunch the numbers and say, that's just not working out. It just doesn't add up. Uh, are, are the conservatives concerned about scrutiny? Is that what seems to be driving this whole idea to keep Ford away from the media? Well, I think so. I mean, I think that they, I think that they realize, I mean, listen, you, you can't just put together a fully costed platform on the back of a napkin and, even the the Hudak, you know, you know, million job guarantee or whatever it was in 2014. I mean, despite the fact, you know, even not the hundred thousand job things. Just remember how much grief he got for his math being off. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, political platforms are often, you know, ways that op 
opposition parties going, you know, the other side can attack you. So I think the, the conservative thought here is we don't need it. We're going to, we'll give you some, you know, we'll get two cents on the dollar and, and a big sign, and that's all you need to know. Thanks, and good night. And perhaps in today's electoral climate in this province where there is this desire for change, maybe, maybe they're right. Maybe that is all they're going to need. Well, that's the big question, I guess. Are, are Ontario voters going to buy that? Uh, lots more to talk about in the uh, days and weeks ahead. Uh, always a pleasure, Alan. Thanks so much for the time today. Bill, always great to be on. Thank you so much for having me. You betcha. Take care. Alan Carter, of course, you can watch him 530 tonight on Global News and, of course, the Queen's Park Bureau Chief. And uh, there are lots of stuff going on uh, down at uh, Queen's Park over the next couple of days. Uh, the, the Mike Harris thing, the MPP Mike Harris, and so many other uh, little things that I think do eventually have an impact on people's lives when they decide which way they're going to vote in this upcoming election. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. There is a great deal of concern and justifiable concern about what's going to happen with the uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline. The uh, Kinder Morgan project, of course, is pretty much stalled now because of protests uh, at the site, but more importantly because the B.C. government has decided not to sign the appropriate papers and has uh, said that they have actually try to take the federal government and Kinder Morgan to court to stop this. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau remains steadfast in his support for the project, though. We uh, are uh, determined to see that pipeline built. It is in the national interest. It doesn't make any sense for us to continue to have but a $15 billion discount on our oil resources because we are trapped with an American market. We need to get our resources to new markets. It is in Alberta's interest, of course, but it's also in the interests of all Canadians, and that's why we're moving forward with this pipeline in a safe and responsible way. Uh, as for the options, we're considering a broad range of options, and uh, we'll continue to uh, as, uh, as the days and weeks unfold. Well, the Prime Minister is certainly saying the right things, but uh, how's he going to get this done? Joining us to talk about that, Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at uh, Carleton University. Ian, thanks so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. My pleasure, Bill. Uh, the time for talk is over. I think it's the time for action on this project. What do you say? I agree completely. And just for the benefit of your listeners who may say, well, you know, this is a legitimate dispute. This pipeline was approved. It went through all the proper channels. It went through all the regulatory hoops. It's been in the, uh, in the pipeline, if I can use that, no pun intended, for years. And they have spent um, uh, an enormous amount of money, a billion dollars, uh, in seeking and obtaining all the legal regulatory approvals. It has been challenged in the court, and the courts have upheld it as being under the domain of the government of Canada because pipelines cross, this pipeline crosses provincial boundaries, and under the law of our land called the Constitution, when it crosses provincial boundaries, it becomes a federal authority. And so all the things have been provided, all the hoops have been uh, uh, jumped over, the approvals have been obtained. And the other point I want to get out before we deal with what can be done, I went to the website of uh, Natural, Natural Resources Canada, that's the regulator. Pipelines have been in Canada since the middle of the 1800s. That's 150 years or more, and we are shipping in pipelines in Canada 1.3 billion barrels a year, and last year 500 barrels were spilled. In other words, the safety record is 99.99999%. 
It is the safest form of transporting oil. It is far safer than trucks or trains. Uh, and, and so the argument by the uh, protesters is a bogus argument that this is a dangerous way to ship oil. That is simply not supported by the evidence that has uh, been uh, maintained by both the Canadian and, and American regulators that show shipping oil by pipes, by pipelines, is by far away the safest way to ship oil uh, or gas. Exactly. But the problem that I see, well, among many that they're facing right now, though, Ian, is that uh, Premier John Horgan of British Columbia is, is simply saying, don't let the facts get in the way of my ideology, because that, that's basically it. I mean, this, he's hanging his hat on the fact that, well, I was elected. He was not elected, as a matter of fact. He formed a coalition government, uh, and, and, and as a result, he's trying to force that NDP ideology onto, onto this project. Indeed, and more importantly, whether he, I don't dispute he was elected, but so what? I mean, if he wants to say, I don't want, um, of this, let me give an example, the CBC to have offices in British Columbia, well, that's beyond his, his control. The CBC is a federal body, a federal crown corp. If people say, I don't want to talk about the CBC, how about Canada Mortgage and Housing? There are many federal bodies and federal institutions. Banks are regulated federally, not provincially. And so Horvath can say, you know, I don't, Horgan, sorry, uh, can say, I don't like uh, banks being regulated federally. I'm going to go regulate them myself. That is not, first off, that would not be held upheld in the courts because under the Constitution Act of Canada, it is very clearly banks are federally regulated, just as pipelines that cross boundaries. Actually, there's three different provisions according to constitutional lawyers, that have determined that this is a federal regulatory responsibility. So it doesn't matter whether he's elected or not. Of course he was. That doesn't give him jurisdiction to do something he doesn't have the legal authority to do. He has no authority to, uh, to, to, um, to try and stop these uh, uh, pipelines from being built because they don't fall under provincial authority. You know, you, you talked about the process a couple of minutes ago, Ian, and, and it's worth remembering exactly what happened here. And many people, including Horgan, by the way, and some of the people that are on the site, like Elizabeth May from the Green Party and others that are on site protesting this, demanded back in the day that all of these things be done, that they go to this agency, that they get this, that this be vetted here, etc. All yeah. that stuff has happened, and, and so that's all been satisfied. They just don't like the answer. Exactly. That's exactly the point. And what they're now doing is a violation of the law of the land. In fact, a superior court judge said yesterday that, the, that there's lawful authority to prosecute the trespassers, including Elizabeth May, under the criminal code. They've been uh, given civil, uh, uh, almost like a parking ticket. They've been given civil tickets, if you will, uh, charged civilly. But the uh, Superior Court judge said that they, there is uh, sufficient evidence for them to be uh, prosecuted under the criminal code of Canada. So this is very serious stuff, what they're doing. They're tr violating the law because they just don't like it. There's lots of laws, Bill, that I don't like, but I still have to obey them. We ordinary Canadians have to obey the law, but it would appear that environmentalists believe that they're, uh, they are above the law, literally, and that they do not have to be obey the laws of the land that the rest of us must obey. The Prime Minister's been on side with this, uh, to his credit, uh, but he, st yeah. he took a back seat for the longest time, Ian. I, I don't know if he was assuming that uh, Premier Notley and Premier Horgan were going to find some compromise here, but he, he seemed to think that diplomacy was the best tact. 
Uh, in my commentary earlier this morning here on CHML, I, I reminded people about an old quote from Winston Churchill as he was talking to a, a newly elected MP. And uh, Churchill asked the, uh, the young guy, he says, do you have any enemies? And the guy said, well, yeah. And he says, that's good. Because that means you took a stand on an important issue. Uh, I think it's about time the prime minister started making some enemies because he's going to have to do, do, take some stands and, and do some action here. Something has to happen. I agree completely. I mean, this is a, an, a, a direct uh, uh, challenge to the federal authority. And it's not about ego and, and that sort of thing. Are we going to have a country called Canada, and are we going to respect the Constitution, which has a division of powers? You know, the provincial governments are responsible for certain things, and the federal government's responsible for other things. And are we going to be a rule-of-law country? Or are we going to be like these developing countries that I teach in around the world, where you can have uh, people in power, uh, you know, doing what they wish, you know, and uh, they feel that the laws don't apply to them. They're not rule-of-law countries. I'm referring to Russia, obviously. I'm referring to Romania. I'm referring to Venezuela. You know, we are not like that. We are a rule-of-law country, and just because he or his supporters, environmentalists, don't like the pipeline is not a justification to break the law and try to prevent it from going through when the federal government, which has been elected by all Canadians, not just people in B.C., have determined that it is in the national interest of Canada. All right, so if the Prime Minister is going to follow through on this, and, and, and by the way, the, there's a lot of pressure, I think, on Prime Minister Trudeau at this stage. Uh, this is uh, getting to be a crisis situation, Ian, and, and yes. uh, with two years to go before the election, I mean, how he responds and how he acts in the next couple of weeks I think is really going to define his government and his administration. I think, actually, um, his job is possibly on the line. Uh, and I, I don't mean to be apocalyptic, but he ran on one of the most important uh, issue uh, platforms, one of the most important promises he made was the former government, the Harper government, really messed up on the energy file, which is very important to us because it counts for such a, a major contribution towards GDP and tax revenues and so forth. And he said, the former government messed it up. I have a solution. I'm going to bring together the economy and the environment and achieve social license by having a national carbon tax, or at least the provinces uh, adopting a carbon tax under the framework or umbrella of a federal government. And I'll ensure the pipeline is going through, will be built to tidewater so that we can get market price. The, if some of your listeners may be a bit confused, saying, well, wait a minute, if we're getting the oil there, well, who cares? We're shipping it right now, and it's being shipped into the States, uh, and, it, and we are being charged a very major discount. And the Americans are buying it cheap from us because it's landlocked oil, and then they're taking it to the coast, to Tidewater, and then shipping it to Asia at full market value, and they're pocketing the difference. The last 10 years, according to former Liberal Premier McKenna of New Brunswick, Canada has lost over $100 billion, which is money that would flow into governments as tax revenues to fund our health care system, to fund our universities, our colleges, our schools. And this, we are squandering this just because of this ideological opposition by a tiny minority of people. Where the oil is still going out. It's still being sold, but it's being sold at a tremendous discount. And all of Canada and Canadians are the losers in this, this dispute. Ian, we got a couple of minutes left here. I want to talk about possible solutions. I mean, my understanding is uh, there are at least three different scenarios the prime minister could uh, could follow here. Yes, yes, there are. Um, the um, 
the one is uh, uh, prosecuting the the protesters civilly, um, and which is analogous somewhat to a parking ticket or a bylaw in fr- uh, violation, and that's I don't think it's very effective. Um, a, a second one is to prosecute them criminally. That is to say, uh, seek uh, obtain a court order, and then when it's violated, you then use RCMP to remove them, as happened so about 20 years ago in Claycott Sound in British Columbia. The third, and the third option is the one I do not uh, advocate at all, is using the military, such as we used at Oka about 15, 20 years ago in Quebec. Mm-hmm. I don't don't think that's the way to go. The images are terrible. In a, in developed countries, first world countries like Canada, using the military to enforce uh, domestic law is seen as uh, very uh, draconian and inappropriate, highly inappropriate. And so I don't think that's the route the road to go. I think that the uh, the uh, prosecuting with a court order. Now I just want to throw one. I said there's three, but there's one other possibility that has been uh, suggested by Jason Kenney. And he said, if you, uh, the federal government, can threaten to withhold monies from Saskatchewan because they're not going to adopt a carbon tax, he says, you can equally suspend or withhold monies due from the federal government to the government of British Columbia until they enforce the laws of the land in British Columbia. And that is a possibility that hasn't been discussed enough yet, withholding some of the billions of dollars in transfer payments that are dispersed by the government of Canada to the various provinces, in this instance, British Columbia. Because as we both know, Ian, at the end of the day, money talks. Money talks hugely, and we're not talking a couple of thousand dollars. We're talking several billions of dollars that transfer. This is the federal government transfers money for higher education, uh, for for infrastructure, uh, for health care. I mean, they transfer enormous. About fifty percent of the federal budget of the three hundred plus billion a year is spent in tra- so-called transfers to the provinces and yes, individuals across Canada. So the government of Canada does have some leverage beyond prosecuting the individual protesters, either civilly or criminally. Uh, The big hammer that they have here is something called asserting federal constitutional authority over the project, uh, which would guarantee construction. Uh, Did they have to go to that extent? Um, it's been done before, by the way, um, asserting, I forget the section number of the, of the, excuse me, of the Constitution Act of Canada. It's very powerful. It's been used in the past for railroads, telegraphs, uh, telegraph systems in the old days, and of course, pipelines. And um, it's, again, it's not using the military. I want to make clear. It's really, I mean, it, this isn't exactly right what I'm saying, but close enough. It's, it's almost nationalizing the, the pipeline, saying it is now a federal, essentially it's a federal property or it has the full protection of federal property. And at that point, you're not taking on a private for-profit company called Kinder Morgan Oil Company. At that point, you are literally confronting and challenging property of the government of Canada that is no different than a federally owned and built bridge across, you know, the St. Lawrence River or, or, or a federal airport or some other property like that. It would be an, of that nature. And I think that the British Columbia government would be very loath to directly confront the federal authority over federal uh, assets. And and that's what that would involve. Very quickly, Kinder Morgan has basically said they want uh, some assurances by the end of May that that this is going to go through, uh, which it indicates to me the Prime Minister is going to have to act pretty quickly here. In fact, they are meeting as we speak at this very moment, uh, about three kilometers from my house in Ottawa. They're down in Parliament Hill, and they have an emergency meeting of the Cabinet because they realize that this is a very serious, uh, I'm not being apocalyptic, it's a national crisis 
when a province refuses to obey the laws of the land, implement and execute the laws of the land to protect a legally authorized uh, 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 project that was done under the rule of law. So they are meeting as we speak to come up with some kind of a response or a solution. So they're going to act quickly. Uh, if they're three blocks away, you and I'm going to let you go now. You go those three blocks and tell them what you just told us, won't you? <laughs> okay, will do. Thanks so much, Ian. Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.